episode 3, which I am titling The Apology Bore. And a lot of this was driven by the best friend of this podcast, uh, my friend Chris, who I am very, very indebted to for his attention and care to this, and also his wife as well, uh, Rachel. Thanks, Chris and Rachel. All right, so, uh, Nostradamus, why do people like The Good Place, the sitcom? People like The Good Place because it makes Veggie Tales look like Paradise Lost. Thanks, Nostradamus. Uh, so I'll try to keep this part short, but I just realized that I hate The Good Place more than I hate The Big Bang Theory, just for the reason that The Good Place grossly over-promises, and at least The Big Bang Theory isn't really trying to do anything, it just sucks. The Good Place is sort of like talking to a 7th grader who is taking their first philosophy course, and then asking them to tell you about the afterlife. Uh, so for one thing, The Good Place takes four seasons to present the idea that uh, there is a purgatory. I'd like a lot of my time back, please. Secondly, they set up this idea of asking, you know, what happens after we die, and then we move on to whatever, the next plane of existence. And they start with this central mystery that, you know, we don't really know. But they end the show with that just abstracting it a further layer and saying, oh, well, there's this whole purgatory. And then there's this other door, and we don't know what happens after that. It's such a cop-out. Uh, on top of all of that, I cannot believe with the diversity of their writing staff. Uh, maybe it's not that diverse, I don't know. Ethnically, anyway. Because they, in the very last episode, they commit the sin of Orientalism, which is this idea that the East is somehow mysterious, and Eastern thinkers have some secrets to the universe that are not normally available to Westerners and all. Yeah, Confucius say, right? And I can't believe that they are engaging in a thought form that has been shown to be problematic and frankly racist for, you know, at least 100 years. Yeah, I mean, I could go on for a while about why The Good Place sucks, but I digress. In response to feedback from last episode, I had this realization, this come-to-Jesus moment, and I want to apologize to everyone because because of all this shilling and, and pleading and attempts to, I don't know, make this podcast uh, popular, that kind of goes against my philosophy for doing anything. And I got so wrapped up in how to grow your podcast and I'll do a Patreon that I was completely blind. So this episode three will be the last of its kind in that I'm going to plan to uh, reduce the production schedule to one episode every two weeks. I'm kind of divesting myself of a lot of the stress that's gone into this. It has been so beneficial, and it's been such a lovely experience, and I didn't understand how to communicate that to the small group of listeners. <laughs> and I realized that the people who are listening to this aren't so much listening because they're interested in Mensa or explaining it. They care about me. They're my friends, and... I, I, I don't know how I forgot that, but I just want to tell everyone who's listening right now how important that is to me. And I there is no better reward you could give me than being my friend. And so I'm not interested in growing this or as, as much as I want to be part of the cultural conversation. I'm not going to do that using this tool because it, it wouldn't seem right to me. And so I just want to thank you all and... I'm, I'm going to work on some other projects. When I started doing this, it was it, it energized me beyond belief. I was happier than I'd been in, in a very long time. I remember just walking around the house just thinking, oh, wow, I'm happy. And that's it's a rarity for me. And over time, it sort of lost that glow a little. You know, and that's unavoidable. In this stress I was experiencing about not being as excited about this, I realized, you know, what I should be doing. So definitely we'll, we'll keep producing episodes. In a similar vein, the interview portions, I've noticed that when I complete an interview, I have that same glow, that same joy. And then somewhere in the process of editing it down and, and kind of scripting out, outlining the episode, I tend to lose it a little. And so I'm certainly going to keep interviewing people. But you know, I won't necessarily kind of force you to listen to it. I know it's not all that interesting. Here's a little clip from today's interview that's amusing. Oh, no one's going to listen to this. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> I think I have to accept that. So I guess what I'm saying is 
I see now that a lot of this is just for me, and that's all I expect. And if I have friends that are wonderful enough to join me, even if it's just, you know, three or four, I'm good. I'm very happy with that. Having said that, I realize that the last episode might have offended some people, and it kind of comes with the territory. It's a little intentional. I, this is probably annoying, but I'm trying to get to, to, to establish a dialectic. So I'm pushing hard, hoping someone will push back hard and that will we'll compromise, basically. But I didn't see that in doing so, I'm, I was kind of excluding the social dimension of a discourse, which is the value in it beyond whether a person is right or wrong, which is kind of you know, what this whole podcast was about, trying to move past this idea of right and wrong being the thing to be obsessed with and how I have this theory that, that people with high IQs tend to forget the other stuff beyond just the right and wrong of it, the social value, the social-emotional component of discourse, I suppose. Right, so having said that, I was asked to explain in detail why J.J. Abrams sucks. Um, basically, the idea is this. If you look at a movie, and we'll just take the latest Abrams Star Wars movie, and you look at how popular it is, you look at how much money it made, you can draw certain conclusions from that. Clearly, by design, it was meant to appeal to the most number of people possible, the largest, most diverse demographic, all in the pursuit of making the film what's considered a success and that is the opposite of what art is. It's not about trying to reach the masses. It really is an act unto itself. And I know that might be a strange idea for people who view film as more of an entertainment vehicle. And to that I would say, I, I can't help but make this sound bad, but it's sort of like if all you watch are action movies, you will start to distinguish between the various action movies based on you know, who's in it and you know where it's set and is there a gunfight is there a romance but in the end they're all action movies and it's it's natural to become acclimated to something you see a lot of and become blinded to what's outside of that so in other words i'm saying by definition successful films are popular and make a lot of money and so people get acclimated to what a quote-unquote successful money-making film is, and that excludes the vast majority of what is, is valuable art. And uh, I think it's pretty clear that when you look at any hobby, a person who dedicates a good chunk of their time to a topic consumes a great deal of it and develops an expectation, an understanding of what this thing is. And it's only natural to remark on those items that are unique. So for the sake of argument, let's just go back to film again. Any consumer of film at some point will start to develop an expectation for novelty. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, just stuff you haven't seen before. Because if you just keep watching the same thing over and over, either you don't have very high standards or, like I said, people get acclimated to the same old thing. So an analogy would be, you know, say you're a beer connoisseur. You're not going to say your favorite beer is Coors Light. In the same way that I wouldn't say my favorite movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark or something, which is the Coors Light of movies. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'll leave it there. I want to note that when I refer to popular film as all the same stuff, that... I'm not talking about the plot. So there's a cliche that goes something like, there are only so many stories that can be told. Now, I won't get into whether that's true or not right now, but even if there were a finite number of stories that can be told, there are an infinite number of meaningful ways to tell that story, which is the point of art. And I find it troubling that many people will reduce a complicated thing like uh, a film or humor, comedy, to just its skeleton, which entirely misses the point. I did want to give uh, one 
anecdote about the power of keying in on these unique, singular, powerful pieces of art that, that distinguish themselves from the same old thing. One year in college, I randomly decided to talk to and attempt to become friends with the person that I, from strictly looks alone, would be a person I probably wouldn't get along with. Take, make of this what you will, but the person was sort of a, you know, a skinnier, blonde girl who I erroneously assumed was uncomplicated. And we got to the point where it seemed that we were just going to be acquaintances. And I, I tossed some line off about this, this band, Pavement, which is a band out of Stockton that I would say is relatively not known to, you know, as many people that know who Nirvana or Pearl Jam were. Are. And she happened to be a fan of that obscure band too, and actually that established the groundwork for what remains a, a strong friendship. And imagine meeting someone and saying, hey, do you like Raiders of the Lost Ark? Almost certainly they will say yes. I mean, the vast majority of people will say yes. But what does that really say? I mean, there's, there's nothing, there isn't a shared valuation that tells you, oh, this is a unique person because everyone likes indiana jones but relatively few people like you know in this case pavement and that that power to cut straight through to someone's core it just says something about certain kinds of film or music or media the the bond that it can form instantly says a lot about the the value of that thing i will certainly talk about this again because i've also started thinking a little bit more softly after experiencing some pushback from people whose opinions are, I respect greatly. But we will leave it here for now. I know last episode I said I was going to talk about politics, which I'm pretty sure I will never do on this podcast because I realize that goes into the whole reason, the question of why I'm doing this. It's not to remind you of everything you just read on Washington Post or Fox News. So probably not going to happen for a while, if ever. Before I forget, I wanted to address a concern that this podcast strays away from Mensa too frequently. If you take a longer view, I, I guess this might take some patience, it will become clear that it all gels together. In broad strokes, my conception of Mensa is that it is it and people with high IQ and the increasingly non-theistic populace, our civilization, is growing closer and closer to the, or finding greater comfort in the, the warm glow of cold logic and of, of over-analysis, of picking things apart and dividing them up and putting them in boxes. And the way that people look at movies, the way that people think about religion, the way that people in Mensa think, all reflect this trend. And that, that's the unifying thing. So I guess that brings us to the interview segment. I just want to preface that by saying we do kind of talk about certain controversial topics. And since you're all my friends, I, you know, I know that's not an excuse to be blasé or offensive about things. And I think I'm playing this up too much. It's not that bad. But um, anyway, please enjoy. <laughs> You brought up something in your first one about what do you call it, Mensa Chan? Yes, yes. No knowledge of that. No, yeah, I had no idea anything like that was happening. I feel uh, concern, worry. Yeah. I, I think these are some troubled people. Yeah. We, we, one of my basic ideas is IQ is it's not a benefit. It's, it's a tool you can use. Mm. But I wonder if these people are going down the the path of arrogance uh -huh, uh -huh. thinking that there's some benefit or, yeah. or that they, they feel entitled to some kind of uh, privilege because uh, they can remember license plate. <laughs> and the girl, I, the, the comedian who had done her My Year in Mensa, mm. uh, well, I've known a lot of comedians over the years and uh -huh. they tend to have some baggage. Sure. Not, in particular does. Huh? But I feel she's an outsider in society trying to find a place. Yes. I, I encourage her to continue that journey. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I, 
you probably have a fairly good idea. I mean, it's just kind of exposing that Mensa Chan phenomenon. Um, and of course, if that's her primary input for her experience, it's gonna be bad, you know. <laughs> I even though I, part of this is is my trying to predict or make connections or think that move towards maybe not knowing a Mensa on site, but the more you, you you know about their commonalities, you know, you start to mm-hmm. you know, ideas about what they're like, what we're like, I guess. And it's funny that she didn't think she'd pass because from her explanation of her background and in life, I can't, you know, she she fits in <laughs> with us. I mean, I, as much as she doesn't like that, has anyone ever accused you or suggested that you you are arrogant, or have you thought that of yourself? My ex-wife said that. <laughs> no, a- arrogance uh, comes with part of the human experience. I think being able to recognize it and 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 it's damage, uh, probably arrogant a, a lot more than we suspect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Almost implied that once you say it, you are sort of immediately separating yourself from them and kind of, they, they feel threatened often. Um, here's how I look at ability. It's not really an ability. There are two things I, I feel I can do. I can memorize data, just either, just it, it came across in front of me, or I got to read a book and spit it back out. Yeah, great. Or the ability to rotate abstractions. Yeah. And that is, at its most basic, you look at a box and you say, oh, I know what the backside of that box looks like. Or um, here's a bunch of data, rotated around the idea of um, which one has increased the most, uh, spit that back to me. And, and I call that rotating an abstraction. With your background in math, I'm sure you're familiar with the idea, yeah. Two things. Could you, do you include seeing a person and being able to rotate them to imagine what their backside looks like as a related? <laughs> <laughs> Get that, that end, uh, <laughs> verify whether you were right. Right. <laughs> or it can be nice just in itself. Uh, I, I wonder, do you think being in Mensa, so which I'm beginning to believe is means something like you have a certain left-brained a little bit more than the other 98%, so to speak. Well, I'm going to fight that idea. I don't think uh, Mensa tends to be more left-brained. I I don't know if if it means there's more interconnections shot through our brains, that we we connect up the sides more. Some people seem to be able to look at something and transfer it into an illustration. They, they seem to be more capable of drawing. It, is that a benefit? Yeah, I, I actually admire that skill. Or someone who can play a number of musical instruments or seem to understand they're more empathetic and understand what other people are feeling. I don't. I, I freely admit that. <laughs> um, but I, I see a benefit to someone who is empathetic. I get a little too meta when I talk. Sometimes I just, as you can probably tell from the first time. However, that's a Mensa thing to bring it around to. And um, I grew up not knowing I was intelligent. Uh, and somewhere in my 20s, I took an IQ test for the state of Arizona mm-hmm. and scored like 99.96, really, really high to work as a cook. Right. This was... It was the employment office of the state of Arizona where I lived. The, the counselor looked at my score and said, well, you've got to drive your, your friends crazy. You're not fitting in. Mm. And that was where I started getting the idea of, I think I was 29 or so when I went to the, the Mensa chapter in Arizona was holding their meeting at the bar in Phoenix where I worked. Mm. And so I went up and introduced myself and said hi and that was wow. when I started going to the meetings. Wow. <laughs> and, and I saw the benefit. And the benefit is you're hanging out with a bunch of people who can can go meta and talk and, and keep up with each other and just flow the ideas. That's what the fun of Mensa is. It's just feeling the ideas flow. And the, the idea of Mensa Chan, yeah, the ideas are flowing towards our own brilliance and our own yeah. uh, importance. Talk to me in 10 years. Let's, let's see how that worked out for you. Yeah. It, I guess maybe that's kind of one of the things it comes back to is 
are these people reproducing? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, these people in Minsuchan, do they have a date on Friday night? Now you're just talking, speaking in terms of uh, s a social life. You're not talking about e eugenics of a kind of, are you? Well, I am. <laughs> okay. uh, do, do people with IQ reproduce more than people without? And I don't think so. There are two pieces of, of fiction. One is Cyril Cornblus, The Marching Moron. I've so heard of it. heard it. And then the other story, there was a movie, pretty well known, called Idiocracy. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which was, what was the guy's name? Um, um, Judge. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. Brilliant movie. And, and shows the idea, of, it, it really tears apart the arrogant idea, intelligence is a benefit. Mm -hmm. The thing about Idiocracy is, you know, people love that movie. It's a well-loved movie by all types of people. But I think the, the moment that you approach someone and suggest that you really can kind of draw conclusions about being ruled by idiots and, and the 98% and all that, they bristle. You know, it, it's, it's like they can see something and be entertained by it, but then when you suggest that it has implications about their own intelligence or perhaps that it's, it's that same defensiveness, right? Well, uh, in the first episode, you mentioned the Simpsons episode. <laughs> yeah. So it becomes the ruling. <laughs> right. And uh, I remember, I, it's been 30 years, I think, since I saw that episode, <laughs> but I remember it. And I remember, I think the one who's comic book man uh, <laughs> tries to impose his thoughts of how governance should be on Springfield. Yeah. And it doesn't work out. That's another example of arrogance, mm -hmm. the, the arrogance of thinking of self-importance, of thinking I'm important because I can memorize license plates. Right. Uh, why would your opinion really matter? No, let's pull together a thousand people and mm -hmm. find all their opinions and, and see what works for the group. Mm -hmm. But no, feeling just because you, you have, you score high on a test, you should be able to lead or rule or direct. Uh -huh. uh, no, there's a fallacy there. Yeah. Well, he's oh, just arguing just to touch touch back on something we, we were talking about a second ago, conversation with Michael, I, I think that I managed to convince him a little bit that there were certain trends as far as the social intelligence, the, the average social intelligence of an average Benson. That's social intelligence, okay. Yeah, kind of like what you said, the, the idea that, that you don't think you're very good at reading emotion in, in, mm -hmm. in the best way. I, I can't think I see that in a lot of the people in Mensa that I meet. Yeah, I, it probably goes with the territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There have been ideas about, um, because of the number of uh, higher IQ people in the Bay Area, you know, around the Silicon Valley, that uh, you, you mentioned eugenics. Yeah, I can bring <laughs> all the ideas together. But um, uh, that might be one of the reasons Asperger's and uh, an example, oh. a lower level example of Yes, gotcha. You know, of uh, uh, the autism spectrum. Whether there's a higher prevalence of autism in Silicon Valley. That's something people are seeing. You know, I, I heard about that a couple of years ago, but I haven't heard follow-up. You know, I and I feel poorly equipped to even guess at the roots of autism. Well, a lot of people... Alone, is it? <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's easy to quickly, and rightfully so, to offend the parents of autistic children by trying to sort of try to explain it, you know? It's kind of, I can see why they would become upset by a person doing that. But just from a strictly, uh, oh shoot, what is it called? Um, circumstantial. I mean, everything I'm talking about is pretty circumstantial. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, it does seem like sometimes, like of all the people that I know who have had autistic children, uh, they tend to be highly more, more educated, more maybe cultured and sort of first worlders. And yeah. that would go, and, and they, you know, they're not sure why, but this idea that the rate of autism is increasing would track with, you know, the increasing availability of information. It, it, it could be increasing, or it could be we're, we're more knowledgeable about it and recognize it more. Mm -hmm. And I was working uh, a, a significant Indian population at the last job, oh. and so it was fun trying to come up with learning from them. Some of them were from small villages where there would be a central oven it would fire up to like 800 degrees. 
where their food is baking, but it's baking in such a high heat, it's actually charring. And you get the levels of char and just that delicious flavor. Yeah, the, the flavor of cancer, right? You want something to taste good? Burn it carefully, but if you burn it just wrong, <laughs> it tastes really good. There's the idea that charring our food 100,000 years ago levels of association in our brain, which made us able to uh, deal with predators, uh, you know, deal with our environment better. I was going to say, do you, have you ever heard the suggestion that that same discovery of charring food possibly introduced like elevated carcinogens into our diet? Well, why not? Isn't why that everything causes cancer? It's, so, it's interesting to me, though, that the things that allowed us to rise above and develop as, as a species also kill us in a way. Yeah. We're, to find the balance yeah yeah and i mean gee we're doing a real bad job of finding that balance in terms of taking care of the earth for instance brings us around to religions though uh, a, a big idea in a lot of religions is have as many children as you can we're seeing a, a rise in atheism in in america and, and in the world do you think we're, we may lose something for, for example if we just all became atheists i don't know because then a Christian will say, well, you lose all morality. Do you have to be a Christian to have morals? No, absolutely not. No, absolutely <laughs> not. But I guess my question was more, if we subtract our engagement and, I guess, obsession with the supernatural, and we hmm. basically say none of that's real and just leave it in humanity's past, I wonder yeah. if that's losing something. You know? Yeah. You know, those ideas... Uh, told around the fire for 100,000 years, have been important. So, you know, the supernatural, these are, are super powerful beings and overcoming them. I wonder if that comes back around to Mensa and yeah. someone who was arrogant to believe they were intelligent enough to be a ruler. Or God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the God, the God complex, I think, is, um, I think we're more susceptible to it thinking that we are that that we are so intelligent or something that we are almost gods in comparison to the the unwashed masses the 98 percent for example no yeah isn't it it's it's odious yeah yeah reject that idea just right from the front right right yeah but but i mean i i think i'm just saying it's it's an acute danger i think for people who are are or perceive themselves to be more intelligent than everyone or know better I mean, the obvious example, yeah. right? <laughs> I, 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 think, I think that's a sick person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've actually been fighting with my wife a little more since I started doing this project because I think she hears a lot just by implication. You know, I don't, I'm not even being explicit, but whenever I compare myself with anyone about anything, her mind immediately goes, oh, he thinks he's better in, in these ways. Oh. And it's, it's been a, a little bit of a struggle, honestly. Is, is oh, well, I hope she can go beyond that. I mean, isn't that what it's all about is growth? Trying right. to learn more while we, in the limited time we have on this planet. Yeah. And it's, it's it, she, I think the, the key point is whatever it is that, that got us into Mensa, it is some form of expertise, natural, learned, who knows. And I, it, she's a teacher. And as an educator, I would expect her to understand that if you have an expertise, you should use it to the betterment of, of humanity. But there's a disconnect somewhere, I guess because she doesn't believe that by being in Mensa that, that you actually have some sort of expertise, but I think that's fairly clear. Uh, they all tend to have knowledge, mm. uh, and, and frequently there'll, there'll be a passion associated with it, saying <laughs> I know something about it. I have to apply, it's, I was just having this thought myself, I have to apply that question to this podcast too. Like how much yeah. I'm trying to get people to listen to it by by appealing and oh no one's gonna listen to this yeah I know exactly <laughs> I think I have to accept that I won't even listen <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm gonna have to make peace with that because you're right <laughs> well and, and a touch of arrogance and you thinking that it's important enough oh absolutely I, I support the idea um th there are people who, who were like I was 30 years ago. And they're they're having some troubles with society and their their place in it. And Mensa has has helped me understand that. Yeah. That there's an old saying I think it's attributed to Mark Twain. I would never belong to a group that would have me as a member. <laughs> yeah. 
because I went to Vincent meeting. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, yeah, these are my people. Um, <laughs> they're nutcakes. They have troubles with society just as mm. much as I do. And we talk, and frequently alcohol is involved, and we yeah. just let the ideas flow, like you and I are doing here. As Minsons, we uh, sometimes have social problems, but we can memorize a joke. I feel like there's a disconnect with humor in some sense, that you may mm-hmm. memorize the joke, but a joke requires more than just memorization, right? Right, you have to be able to tell it. Yeah, I mean, just to that point, one of the things in you know the, that comedian's podcast was um, that she she often heard the a Manson's understanding of humor as almost strictly a tool or or even a weapon to disarm people to some <laughs> other end. Do you think that uh, Mensons are more at, uh, more likely to make generalizations or kind of think? I don't know about more likely. I think it's just a human thing to make mm. generalizations. Mm-hmm. Generally, <laughs> I say as I make a generalization. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this element of being an outsider, I feel like, is something very interesting. Mm-hmm. We we are all yeah. all yeah. been outsiders. Yeah, and then we get into this group where it seems like we're almost abetting like further ostracization in a way from from the greater society. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, all the differences. I I grew up in in midwestern white Christian boredom and forced to be Christian. And it's so nice to just be away from that. I'm not overly comfortable talking to you about this, but one of the beauties of this area we live in is that it's uh, 23% Asian, 22% white, uh, 20% black, 18% Hispanic, 17% Hindustanic. And as an outsider, there's a beauty there. Well, you were very young when you moved here, weren't you? Like five-ish? Oh, how old were you? You grew up in Indiana, right? Uh, Michigan, close enough. Yeah. Oh, oh, Michigan. Oh, <laughs> so I was in Indiana. But yeah. Um, y- and you left, you came here when you were how old? Ten. Ten. Okay. So you'd, you'd seen some. And was that old enough to see the difference? Definitely, I, I think so. Even if I didn't realize exactly what it was, I definitely experienced some social and self-esteem psychological consequences. Um, oh, and were they negative or positive? Negative. <laughs> oh, send it here. Is yeah. Because you've gone from something known to something unknown? I think so. I had a lot of trouble adapting to sort of my new social. And it's so odd because in, in Michigan, it was much less diverse where I was, e- even though it was quite di- diverse. I just remember it being mostly white people. And when oh. I went to California, it was mostly minorities. And yet somehow I felt, I suppose because I was used to, yeah, being around white people. And in fact, that's my entire life. I, uh-huh. I admit that I'm what they call a banana. You know, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Um, true. Hey. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that term. <laughs> yes, there's also Twinkie um, that has the same. No, I've never heard that one either. <laughs> I've heard Oreo. Oreo, yes, yes, that's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I got to say, Jason, I'm very impressed with how sensitive you are to um, being you know, respectful of, of other cultures, I, that must come from your, because, well, you know, I'll tell you what it comes from, to a degree, that job I had for eight years, uh, I was about the only white person, but also, uh, it's coming to this area, and seeing the strength, you know, when, when you, there's the, the term of groupthink, when you have a bunch of uh, 50-year-old white Christian males deciding how a company should run, they're they're gonna make fairly narrow decisions, but when you bring in uh, gay people and Jewish people and black people and all the different races and, and women and old people and young people, their diversity and that's the right term is going to uh, give you better input. You're gonna make better decisions. You're going to be more creative. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not going to come up with a Pontiac Aztec. And uh, are, you, are you familiar with that one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Pontiac Aztec had to have been invented by uh, uh, white Christian engineers, um, males, all, all of them. And if you'd had a diverse uh, 
aged, white aged Roland influences come in, they would not have invented a Pontiac Aztec. <laughs> would you say the same of that the car, the, the cube, I think it's called? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I think that, that was meant to be marketed towards a micro group. Um, <laughs> I thought it had some some strengths. It was actually, it was, I think it was marketed towards you. <laughs> honest i'm not a huge i'm not about cars yeah. um, i yeah. i just thought it looked unusual but i don't it works <laughs> i mean that's kind of how i think the mensa experience women so uh i i get this feeling that attractive intelligent women don't have time for mensa they're too busy doing what they can with the world and it's very uncommon to find attractive women in mensa hmm. Why do you think that is? Like, why, why, because I'm, I assume you're comparing that to that there are attractive men. In, in yeah, that. they're finding other forms of validation outside of Mensa. They don't need Mensa. Ah. I don't know. Or are they repelled by that side of their personality? I really don't know. I find a couple of S and, and see if you'll get honest answers. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm having a little trouble finding female Mensans to even talk to. The I think the only one I really interacted with ever was Leonore. And hmm. Yeah. It'd be a great one. Which goes back to, I, I thought it was interesting that you just you said that women are, you know, attractive women, as you put it, are more rare in Mensa because they don't need the validation. And so do you think Mensa in a lot of ways serves as a validation tool? Right? For me, uh, for me, it's an, an identity. I was adrift and had no idea why I had so much trouble with the world. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I'm starting to see uh, I have these yeah. characteristics. Being in this, being in the group, has helped me uh, understand why I have trouble, some troubles mm -hmm. interacting in society. Two quick questions about that. Mm -hmm. I think it is that you um, you didn't really see that for you know for you know twenty twenty years you know until you found them. Well, I, I was never in. I I wasn't in an engineering school. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in debate club. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't go to law school, uh, didn't go to medical school, was not in environments uh, or, or, or a math department. You know, I, I keep looking to you for that. <laughs> were you surrounded by other people who are very comfortable manipulating uh, data in, in your, your math programs? Yeah. And, and I wasn't in any of those. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in high school, my, my goal Back then, there was a lot more middle management, and mm. just find a nice place in middle management. That's where I'd like to be. They had music talked out of me that I was not going to be a musician. All of that hurts me to hear, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, parents would be really cruel. Yeah. Eventually, I, I got away from that and yeah. realized, you know, I, I, I had to take a test called the PSAT. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And we got the scores back. And I mentioned I was standing next to someone, and right. mm. you know, what does this mean? And she mm. said, it means you're very intelligent. So, oh, no. Yeah, and, and you, then I wanted to go to college, and so one day my mom said, hey, on Saturday, you got to drive over to UMKC, uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City, and take this uh, SAT test. So mm. I go, okay, sure. I went and took it, and I had to take, I also took the ACT. And the uh, school counselor called me in and said, um, you know, your score is like the highest I've ever seen. Yeah. As, as a, it's a rural sure. Missouri uh -huh. uh, high school, but we had like four, over 400 people. I graduated in the bottom half of the class, but uh, wow. there were like 430 students and I was in the 280s. So I was, mm -hmm. I was way down there. Oh, wait, yeah. no, that's over half. <laughs> oh, I was in the top half. Wow. <laughs> No, for, for 30 years, I thought I was in the bottom half of my class, but <laughs> I was actually in the top half. I got to think, you know, I was going to say. How about that? I feel better about myself. I'm glad <laughs> we had this talk. Jason, you have so many wonderful qualities that I have to believe come from, I mean, for me. Well, I never had children. <laughs> so, uh, there, there's been an extended neonomy. And just go off and, and learn things. And, and a good chunk of it also came from my ex, who was from a matriarchy, that her father had died at an early oh. age. 
So her mother and her older sisters had raised the family. Yeah. She was just a, a wonderful influence on me uh-huh. from what I learned from my ex. Yeah. Uh, I was very sorry when she passed away. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're real sad too, Jason. Yeah. You you didn't. Did you meet her? I never got the... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah a, a few people did. Mm. She'd come to uh, the, the brewing functions and, um, like I say, she knew Leonor and Larry. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I think she actually lived with them for a while. <laughs> yeah. houses that yeah. they took her in. Well, so I was going to say, like, I, it seems to me that, well, you know, in the limited number of people I've asked this, that we, that a lot of us have had an, an understanding of the nature of our um, outside, uh, our outlier nature, even before, you know, taking that test. I think it's so interesting that, that you, you didn't have that, it's, it's, you know, excuse the term, but it's, it's almost like you're more of a savant type, you know, you, you kind of mm-hmm. un- sometimes at, at some point a little unaware of your own abilities in, in a certain concrete sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're using the word ability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You use the word difference. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I, yeah. That's the joke, right, of why I call this men's planning Mensa. It's like the moment I start talking about Mensa. Yeah. Already, like, There's an arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. This I, and I share this. Like, I think that we have both, especially, like, as younger people, had some issues with self-esteem. I'm assuming about you. I haven't really asked you. It doesn't end when you're young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I find, like, as a for- when you're forming your mind, right, if you have that stress, extra stressor of, of low self-esteem, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it does something. No, it's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think having an overinflated sense of self-esteem is also a bad thing. Yeah. Continually looking for balance. Right. I think a lot of what I've tried to do in life is just trying to find balance. Um, uh-huh. I had problems when I was younger with money, with wanting too much to have money. And I've, I've learned that that was not a good thing. And as part of it, uh, I'll never be wealthy. And I'm comfortable with that. But finding balance... Christianity is not balance, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, atheism is not, you know. Yeah, the, no, I agree. The, the, it's like it's designed. By design, you can't determine whether or not God exists. Uh-huh. Well, why ask the question? Why waste time on the question? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, atheism. Hmm. I, I heard Ricky Gervais say this the other day, and I thought it was pretty clever. There are 2,500 religions on Earth. The Christians don't believe in 2,499. <laughs> I don't believe in 2,500. Right. So the Christians are almost as atheistic as I am. Oh wow. He, he said it better. He was funnier. You you were saying we're talking really saying you know talking about minorities and how you've developed a respect for them and be and. Being around them so much, I'm sure has it's been a trial and error. I would imagine, just as it is for for everyone. Have you ever offended a, a minority by kind of something you ask them? Or? You know, good point. I, I think maybe I was trained well enough that no, I, I've offended a lot of people just without knowing. <laughs> yeah, just, just without knowing, yeah. just because it's, and I can't even claim I was young. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And, and even in the 40s, just uh, just not knowing, just not yeah. being socially mm-hmm. aware. Yeah. But no, as far as offending minorities, um, I used the N-word once when I was five, and I was told not to do that. Sure. Yeah. And so just learned not to. It, and I, I guess I was fortunate that way. Have you you've never used it since? <laughs> no, no. no. Really? Oh, that's that's admirable. Yeah. And that's living in Missouri. Oh, geez. Very, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> also, I was lucky. My first piano teacher was black. Mm-hmm. And it was not, I took lessons from him for three years. Yeah. And he really didn't learn much. He would smoke a cigarette and show me something. And that was, <laughs> he was a chain smoker. Yeah. But didn't have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Really, uh, until 
I moved here and then found out just the strength yeah. of, of diversity. You know, and you, uh, Arizona didn't become a state until like 1908, but coming here, you'll find uh, Hispanic people who've been here since before this was, before, you know, in the 1800s, hundreds mm -hmm. of years, uh, generation after generation, uh, and have been in this area. And that's a, a very strong thing. Yeah, I remember one of you and I, our first conversations, uh, I said I was studying Taekwondo. <laughs> you said, oh, my people invented that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the, <laughs> what part of Michigan are you from? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny there there is that line though that that i think is very blurry of being in a minority and then you you almost cross over into this uh comfort with being a little bit bigoted about your own minority and you will say things like oh we made that even though it's not quite <laughs> accurate but <laughs> and then at the same time if you had told me this says made in china it's white people <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and then it's fun and this makes so much sense in this current where we are with our sort of culture now <laughs> if you had said to me like oh you created taekwondo like i you know it potentially might take offense to that right like it, uh, it's, and i would you should drink a lot of beer sometime maybe you should tell me about it well are you I, i've never asked are, are you like korean or are you biracial oh just korean yeah oh it, Jason, do you? Oh, first of all, I think you may know more about Korean history than I do. So, <laughs> I, I was just gonna throw out a, a joke as an aside. It's good that even though it was in Missouri, that someone told you not to use that word. I mean, there's a, <laughs> rather than abetting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, Jason. Well, I, was in two, I was in the north part of Missouri. That um, Missouri was supposed to be termed with the South. But our little corner up in the northwest, we fought for the north. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Has anyone ever suggested that you you might be on the spectrum? No, I, I've, I've self-diagnosed that there might be a little. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think I was lucky enough to be functional. Oh, so once again, to this issue of diversity, mm -hmm. I, I agree that I want to float by you. Okay. Especially. Well, I, I gotta tell you too. I'm usually not comfortable talking about this with oh. someone who, who's not white. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I want to tell you that. I'll tell you. White people actually talk about this, and we talk about, yeah, but you can never bring it up with someone. Yeah. And yeah. This is, we're kind of breaking through here. I appreciate that. Oh, no, and I, I, and I think part of it is because I am a banana, as I, as I mentioned. Oh, okay. I'm a little... I, I kind of get it, but also as as one of my good friends, Jason, you you could never offend me in that way. I just okay. So the question is, I have this theory that so in the political arena, we're now seeing a lot of thought on this idea that we need to look at the weakest among us to figure out the poorest among us to figure out how to fix society. Basically, it's taken us so long to get there that I wonder. So broad generalization, of course, about that. Is, is there a circumstance in which looking at the weakest would be a bad indicator of what to do next? You know, like, um, it keeps reoccurring in my mind that that keeps happening where, yeah, we got to look there to move forward. Hmm. That's not an idea I put much thought into. Interesting thought. I, I don't have an answer on that one. Hmm. Yeah. I, I would feel arrogant to think I had an opinion to end racism, educated non-whites need to drag whites kicking and screaming into the next century. Well, here we are, it's, we're 20 years into that century, and I, I think we're making progress. And when I say the weakest among us, I'm, I'm also kind of saying that when, when you say we need to appreciate diversity and mm -hmm. look at that as an as a end in itself almost, in a way, I think that's what you're saying too, that as the sort of um, I mean, you're part of a group that's well, traditional. In, in a then, those two ideas overlap. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just one one thing, real quick. Do you think that, to the degree that Mensa is sort of a group that finds validation in separating ourselves from a larger group, 
to... We do. You think we do? That we separate ourselves? I, I can't help but think that it's that question of the implied uh, marginalization. When you say, okay, I tested in the top 2%, at least from, the, uh, from an outsider's perspective. It marginalizes us. I don't know. Maybe Kathy's right. <laughs> Maybe you do think you're something because of... Um, but I was going to say, I will have so many more things to ask you at some point. You seem very busy. Why, why would you say you're, you're a very busy person? I, I have a job. <laughs> and uh, I have a girlfriend. Yeah. And got, um, my ex was great about starting projects. Yeah. And so years later, I'm still finishing them. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what, a, yeah. I think there's a great value in that. I, I think that's a very beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, Michael said something about music in Mensa that I thought was mm -hmm. interesting. He, yeah. His experience has led him to believe that there is not that much crossover for great musical talent in Mensa. And I think he likes you a lot because you, you are a good example of where that does happen, but he thinks it's not very common. I, I look at it as, uh, personally, my brain is comforted by order. Do you think that um, that taking comfort in order has anything to do with perhaps some more negative tendencies to try to order people? No, because you can't order people. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't work out. His name was Hitler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, it's weird, too. One of the things my wife has said about, you know, since I've started doing this, she says I talk about Hitler too much. <laughs> but isn't there some idea on the Internet that if two people get to arguing, one will eventually compare the other to Hitler? I, I right. can't the name of that, uh, that, that axiom. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jason. Well, this has been just... Good. Amazing, you know. It, it's the funniest thing. Like I don't expect this coming into these, but even with Michael, I came out of that feeling so great. You know, it's just thank you so much. And yeah. really well, you're you're using friends and people you know. It might yeah. get different. It, it's <laughs> it's kind of fun watching you climbing this learning curve. Yeah, yeah. See what you're learning. Yeah, it'll be funny when when I start bringing the Mensa Chan people in. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Jason. Well, I hope you have a really wonderful weekend. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. See you, Bubba. And that concludes episode three of Mensplaining Mensa. Thank you so much if you got to this point. Episode four in two weeks, I believe I will be interviewing my first female member of Mensa. So there's that. Thank you for joining me on this ride that is hopefully not as painful as the Yapapai Indian Strat Match, Jack. See you next time. Good night.